Hey everyone, welcome back to the thing about wildlife in a nutshell, where you will hear a bite-sized story from our guest wildlife first time in their field. Our lives among nature tend to be a string of funny, intimidating or simply absurd anecdotes and I'm going to be bringing these to you through some wonderfully diverse and fascinating voices. It has been 15 whole weeks since we began season 2 and this has proven to be another fantastic journey. In spite of these being quicker episodes compared to season 1, I feel like we still really sunk our teeth into the lives of the 16 fabulous guests who have kept you entertained with their stories since this year began. I am so utterly grateful to each one of them for having lent their time and tales to the podcast, including today's ultra-talented guest voice. In today's episode, you will hear a conversation I had with Tejaswini Nagesh, who works with the Worldwide Fund for Nature in Facebook. She is a product designer who is on a mission to explore how she can bring her unique skill set to this field of wildlife conservation through creative collaborations and her focused problem-solving mindset. After doing her bachelor's in mechanical engineering and her master's in product design from the National Institute of Design, she found her way rather serendipitously towards creating solutions for conservation problems. I'll let her tell you more about this unusual trajectory herself now on the thing about building camera traps. Hey Tejaswini, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Hi Shika, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm looking forward to this talk. <laughs> me too. And I'm just very excited that this has been such an incredible season. I've gotten to talk to so many fun people and I'm very excited to do this recording with you because you are one of those people who I was fortunate enough to meet who has just got the most diverse set of skills that of anyone that I've come across in this field. And that's exactly where I want to begin because it feels like a lot of the things that you do, some of it is probably quite innate. It feels like you've been doing some of these things your whole life. And of course, a lot of it, I'm sure, is learned. So walk us through how you came to be so good with just every creative venture. Now also going into a little bit more research stuff, but we'll of course unpack each of these skills a little more. Tell us how you got here. What was... What were some of your early influences? Tell us about your education. I think it's a, it's a lot to do with like being undecided on what you want to do. <laughs> Trying to do multiple things. Yeah, so I did my bachelor's in mechanical engineering. I was still back then also undecided on what I want to do. But uh, I, I thought applied physics is something I would enjoy and that's what I wanted to do. But uh, engineering was, I think the way it is taught uh, in India is a little sad where it's uh, oriented towards mass producing these uh, set of people to do certain tasks, which uh, like I didn't, I, I expected a lot more things. I expected something different from engineering. <laughs> but um, at the end of it, I was like, this is not something that I really expected of it and I wanted to do something else, which is when I uh, uh, got uh, got into NID uh, in product design. Uh, so that's also, again, a very broad, it was a very broad course. Uh, it had multiple, uh, it's not very focused. It, I feel like it was a 
crash course undergrad where you got to try a lot of things given good introduction to design so i did that and then uh, the final semester of product design we get to work on any project that we like uh, we get 6 months to work on it so starting of what i would enjoy doing because it's one time where you don't have restrictions where you can experiment you can see what you you as a designer can do <laughs> so i thought conservation is a place where uh, i didn't see much in terms of i couldn't see if designers were, were working in this field i didn't see much projects in this field so i thought that would be fun to try out it's a good experiment <laughs> so uh, i started cold mailing people saying this is what i can do these are my skills do you think i can help you with something uh i think my mails bounced around a lot and finally ended up with uh, wwf and uh, my boss got back to me uh that's how i started working on this uh, project uh he got back to me saying like i was very broad in saying i can do this this and this right so uh he said he'll make it more concise and said you work on a specific problem because it's a six months project and uh, let's see where that goes so that problem was to see if uh, i can come up with some sort of mitigation measures to reduce elephant and train accidents collisions so that's how i got to working on this it's a very uh, it's quite a bit of chance it's uh, yeah <laughs> some experimentation it's a lot of people giving me a chance so that is nice <laughs> got to do that and then uh, after working on that for 6 months uh, that's when we realized there's potential to work more on it and that's when i got back after my graduation to work on it a lot more in assam specifically and that's where i'm at now <laughs> it's pretty cool that you went through the channel of what skills you have because i don't think a lot of people have really spoken about that and it's also truly fascinating that you decided to pick this field and say okay this is a space where work is not really done i want to ask you to just unpack a couple of things a little more one is just about what the term designer means when you're looking at it through the lens of somebody going through the nid national institute of design course for product design because like you were saying it's kind of like a problem solving approach to things and there is often this conception or misconception that design is just basically art design and those kind of things whereas it can be a lot more and clearly you're doing a lot more and you're still calling yourself a designer so can you walk us through what that actually means well like i said it's a very broad term there are multiple uh, types of design uh, at nid the uh, several branches uh, you can divide them into industrial design and communication design i think most of the work you would see is communication design playing out where people see what how to communicate to people how was the message best shared i think there's quite a bit of work done in that aspect product design involves uh, generally product design means industrial design specifically means uh, developing products which are physical uh, which are uh, 
tangible basically uh, and and the way you arrive at these products is you have a problem to solve you see what, what needs to be developed and your product should cater to solving that problem so uh, that that's the whole process it follows see what problem needs to be solved well, figuring out how to solve it and then seeing if that problem is solved by the thing you developed so that's a very brief <laughs> overview of the process and uh, i was trying to use the same principles in uh, seeing if co conservation issues can be solved right so we look at a problem we see what all can be done we ideate we uh, look at we talk to people see if things can these ideas are good enough then you change stuff or tweak stuff based on input from stakeholders and then hopefully develop something which will uh, potentially solve this issue <laughs> i hope that answers your question it does thanks for just explaining that a little more and i think it's very interesting to look at some conservation issues through that lens as well because very often we probably take a literature review sort of a path to trying and figuring out what are the gaps and how can we fix this problem but it's nice to hear that you can also look at it uh, from a more design perspective and also get the right insights from the right people and i'd really like to know a little more about that as we go ahead but before that you know you've gone like you said from engineering and design and you ended up somewhat serendipitously into what you're doing right now what was was did you have any challenges switching over into something like this or did it happen pretty organically what has it been like for you having gone through that kind of education now being in a field that in some ways is quite far removed from the everydayness of that initial part of your uh, education when uh, i think like i joined my masters right after engineering so i didn't uh, get groomed as much as an engineer I got the qualification, but I didn't train uh, in an industry or something like an engineer. But uh, even uh, during product design, uh, I think the transition was good because my faculty was supportive, and I think that gave me confidence to try this out as well. Right? Otherwise, I think I I don't think I could have done it without that kind of support. But uh, I also. covid hit and in the meantime uh, i took a there was a gap between me uh, changing from graduating uh, from nid and then joining wwf that gap i actually worked in the industry for a bit and there's there's quite a bit of difference the pace at which <laughs> that works is very different from how wildlife <laughs> conservation works uh, i think it's really fast pace especially as in a startup system so that was just really fast pace but I, and here it's i think because time isn't money here it's a little, it goes a little differently uh, and you have to work around permissions you have to wait for the right season you know it's so dependent on so many factors so uh, that's quite different <laughs> but yeah but i think people have been supportive so the transition wasn't uh, too bad and also since i haven't spent as much time in a specific industry i think i didn't feel it as much i really like what you said about the fact that time isn't money in this field and 
but it also makes me think so like you was you know we were saying you have a very wide skill set right you apart from the actual design of products for conservation which is what you're currently working with in some respects uh, you also do visual communication you sketch you paint you build furniture uh, there's so many different things that you do so your job at wwf right now is that for you more of a 9 to 5 sort of a thing when do you find time to do the other things that interest you uh i think i don't know like lots of evenings weekends uh i think one advantage of being on field working on field is uh, you end up working a lot more lot of times on weekends also but you get a little bit of flexibility in uh using your time uh you get a little bit of independence so as long as you do your uh work deliverables i think uh <laughs> you get a little bit of leeway into trying to do other things so <laughs> and i live in tezpur so there's not that much other <laughs> distractions in life to <laughs> yeah yeah so i have to entertain myself so <laughs> i think that also helps Okay so I'm going to jump into asking you about what I saw you doing when I met you like a year ago which instantly just put you on the map for me in so many ways because it's like wow this is a cool person and I want to know more about what this girl does every day uh which was just out of your own volition you decided to build a camera trap from scratch tell tell us more about that why did you decide to do that what uh, what was the process like yeah, uh, yeah i was just uh, like these camera traps in general that we use so extensively is i feel expensive and also doesn't have that kind of features that i would be in often just i was just disappointed at how they that expensive and still don't uh, have connectivity or we can't see these images remotely and i was trying to see if we can build something which was low cost but still would prevent me from going all the way to the field just to collect those uh, <laughs> images so that's where it started but uh, and it was also lockdown so <laughs> i was supposed to stay at home so that that also made me to do something but also i realized building these things need to be robust right although we was successful in just making a camera it would never work on field because i haven't built it to that kind of uh, conditions for it to deal with those kind of conditions i think that's where these ma- manufactured mass produced cameras get the upper hand but still i still believe these can be lower cost it can have better features uh, this potential for improvement <laughs> although that there this technology does exist but it's also really expensive to obtain so when you built your camera trap where did you source the parts from and uh, what were the features it ended up having it was just uh, so i used this raspberry pi board it's open source uh, uh, it's like a mini computer which you can use and uh, upload codes on it so we used that and uh, uh, infrared camera and it had uh, i ran, these were all things i just installed so it's just putting together other people's work 
uh, and it ran a OS which was already developed by someone which could recognize movement and then capture images. Uh, and most of it was sourced off Amazon. <laughs> I couldn't get much in this place, so I had to order most of it. And yeah, that and I could uh, connect my dongle to it and the power bank. So that's how it was powered. But it does have potential, right? If it can be connected to a solar panel, it can run for a while. And if it has internet connection, which most of the places where there's conflict, there are people. So <laughs> there is network connectivity. And if we can run it off uh, yeah, data, then it's great. We can get remote access to these kind of cameras. That's really cool. Did you end up doing any field tests with this? Uh, it was only the tiny bits of uh, testing we did with the lychee tree where we captured monkeys and birds. <laughs> but uh, that was it. I, think, uh, I haven't picked it up after that. So now you, you've also been working with those expensive manufactured cameras that you were talking about, right? So tell us, uh, tell us a bit about <laughs> your experience with that and what your work is currently. So regarding this um, trying to mitigate elephant and train collisions, where most of my information about how elephants cross, what do they, what problems would they face, all of that was based on information someone else witnessed and narrated to me. So it was all anecdotal. So I'm, we wanted to see what exactly goes on when an elephant is trying to cross a railway track. Although there's some mobile videos of people uh, taking these kind of, uh, capturing these scenarios, but I wanted to see what an undisturbed uh, crossing would be like. So we got a few uh, and it's, uh, I think once you see those videos, you can realize they really struggle on an incline because they're really huge animals and they're really careful while going down a slope and and they go in a file. So whenever there's a herd, whenever there's a steep slope, there's like one elephant going down and there's an elephant on the railway track waiting for the one ahead to go uh, clear the space. So the one standing on the railway track is just vulnerable to any train which might come. So that was interesting to see. It's uh, It also informs certain decisions of if it's an important crossing point, there has to be certain provisions that need to be made for elephants so that they can get off such a place easily. We have to some way help themselves, help, like some way help them help themselves. So. I also noticed uh, on your website, which is beautiful, by the way, I think uh, maybe one of the most stunning websites I've ever seen anybody have. You have such wonderful infographics for this work that you've done with the elephants. You've identified a lot of factors that contribute to the problem that would contribute to the solution as well. So how did you pick out those factors? How do you, do you figure out what may be needed or what the larger story was over there? Basically, I, going through the project, uh, the aim is to see uh, what could be the factors which would affect these collisions, right? And most, we like my perspective of looking at this thing was to see all these stakeholders who would be part of the system as experts of the situation. 
So it was basically asking multiple people, local pilots, forest guards, gangmen, uh, asking them to narrate incidents of what they've seen, uh, asking them what would be a vulnerable place. Local pilots give a lot of information like that. Uh, they because they do see what could be a vulnerability, what could be a risk for elephants. Then forest guards, obviously, they keep patrolling at night. They have a lot of things to say. Then there are people who are uh, who are the railway personnel at every uh, level crossing, and they witness a lot of elephants crossing these railway tracks. So it was basically getting as much information from as many stakeholders as possible and listing out what all they think would be uh, vulnerable uh, things that could affect, contribute to such an accident or a collision. So uh, it was mostly talking to quite a few people and drawing insights from that. It also seems like it can be a pretty traumatic experience to just watch these videos even right or talk to people listen to these stories and now you've like you were saying you're camera trapped and you're actually seeing collisions happen what is that like for you is it what what are these videos actually like and how have you been dealing with this so i haven't gotten any video of an actual collision happening but these are a lot of videos of just elephant crossing railway tracks uh, and a lot of them are in conflict areas where they're either chased across a railway track. There, uh, some are uh, maybe within a forest. It's uh, a little more calm where they're doing it at their own pace. But uh, it's um, it's very complex. It depends on the uh, area. It depends on how the conflict scenario is. Like uh, one of the places I work in is in Sonitpur. And here it's just elephants are in such human dominated landscapes that they're being chased from one field to another, from one village to the other. So it's very chaotic. So a lot of times they, I think, don't have the time to decide whether to look, be cautious, look out for things. So, uh, but on the other hand, there are certain places where they're not disturbed, but still accidents do happen there also. So it's it's hard to pinpoint and say this is it, but uh, we're trying to see, uh, look at all the previous accidents and see what factors could have contributed to the accident and hopefully we'll get some insight on that. But it's hard to pinpoint and say this is what caused the collision. <laughs> but there were there's some incidents like there's one which I uh, I got to see as in after the incident took place I visited. Uh, the spot and this huge makna, beautiful elephant. He was feeding on banana while standing on the track and that's how he got hit. Like you could still see food in his mouth and it's all it would have taken is not to grow banana that close to a track. So uh, those are things which uh, the simple solutions and there's something that can be easily achieved but because no no one took precautions, no one went there, did a survey, said this is an elephant prone area, so uh, that wasn't taken care of. <laughs> there was another incident where there was a sub-adult female which was killed and then in broad daylight we saw a huge herd trying to make its way towards the carcass. 
but uh, yeah it's uh, very interesting how elephants and people react to it and also people like i see people crying in front of the elephant they come they pray they have tears in their eyes when they see a dead elephant so they also feel for it quite a bit it seems like an ironic situation that it's because of people and because of the human dominated nature of the landscape that these deaths are happening but it seems to affect people so much do you think that gives you does that give you any hope for people working towards mitigation measures or do you or is it more complicated than that i think they wouldn't want an elephant to die i think that is something they're really clear about but we have to also realize these people have to lose months of sleep they have a risk to life i think they pay a much higher cost than any of us could imagine uh and still they uh, don't blame elephants they rather blame the forest department so i think they're doing quite a bit and uh yeah it's uh, there is hope because there been elephants have been surviving in these landscapes right that means people are still uh, allowing them <laughs> to some although it's wrong to say allowing but they are living with elephants so uh, <laughs> i think they are more sharp considerate than we give them credit for that is such interesting work and i really really hope that uh, something comes of it and it seems like you have a lot of valuable insight from the last couple of years that you've been doing this so more power to you i really hope something works out there uh, like you said it's it's definitely a huge issue the issue it's dispersed it's there within forests it's in uh, outside forests it's just uh, and there's such different contexts so <laughs> that also can be so daunting right because when you go into a system and you're like okay here is a problem and um, i want to research it i want to collect information about it and in the end there is the expectation from either your institution or from your organization or the forest department or maybe even in some cases the local people for you to put out some recommendations at the end but like you're saying when the contexts are so different in many different places and it is hard to say okay this is the one thing we need to do to fix the problem so how do you navigate that yeah but uh, i think although it can't be solved 100% i think it can be reduced quite a bit i don't think we can guarantee that no more accidents will happen but there's quite a few measures because it's such a systemic issue i don't think you can have a one uh, one stop solution to solve all of it there's so many measures that can be taken to break it down into chunks and solve it bit by bit which would potentially significantly decrease uh, the probability of collisions like i said just not having bananas growing on the sides or decreasing inclines uh so looking at factors which would affect these collisions that's why it's important uh, because all of these accidents happen at night when the visibility is low and most times in winter when there's fog looking at if we can improve visibility what if we can uh, make it easier to detect elephants or also to some extent help elephants perceive a oncoming trail although that seems really far fetched but just looking at what each of these factors are and how how do we get elephants easily off a track uh, those kind of things i think if a combination of these kind of solutions may potentially 
decrease uh, these accidents. I think this kind of slightly out of the box thinking, like you were saying, even something which seems as ambitious as helping elephants detect trains. I feel like these are things that you're able to think of because of the background you have and the fact that you're not coming at it with blinders on, like maybe someone like me would have. I think that's that's so fascinating. And if you do end up working towards those kind of solutions anytime in the future, I'd love to have you back and learn more about it because it's truly fascinating. And like you said, very essential as well. I hope we can try it out. It's also hard to assess how effective <laughs> any of these solutions can be. I guess uh, it all comes down to trying it and uh, seeing what works, what doesn't work <laughs> and hoping for the best. <laughs> so I'm actually going to move to a slightly lighter note towards the end of this, which is more about the things you said that you do to entertain yourself, right? On the side, which includes your art, which includes your sketching and I see a lot of your art is so much geared towards elephants and you seem to have taken on a very uh, deep influence from nature, which seems to have spilled into your art. Is that something that's always been there or is that a new development because of your work? I think I started sketching a lot more uh, once I started studying design. It was also something... Uh, that is a requirement even because a lot of my communication uh, material is also very visual. I think that helps me uh, explain things to my stakeholders to also in some way get insights from them. Uh, it's more of a tool uh, for me that helps me communicate with people. And I think because that is so useful uh, in that aspect, I also... Uh, try and incorporate it in other ways, which I enjoy doing also. So it uh, helps include this bit of it in a way that I would enjoy. So uh, that's there. And because elephants, I keep drawing elephants for work. So I end up doing a bunch of extra ones as well. So that's how that happens. But also, I think staying in Northeast, there's so many things to observe, so many things that are different from where I come from. So it's uh, I am tempted to uh, note them down <laughs> as a sketch. That's so lovely. And also because for me, this is cool and fascinating because just in the last episode we did, I got to speak to Laboni and Deepika, who are two incredible artists. We were talking about how sometimes it's difficult to bridge the gap between a researcher or somebody who is trying to do some kind of outreach and the artists themselves because there can be mismatch of information transfer there and uh, you can have things lost in translation or you may not get the whole sense of it so you need to have a lot of conversation about what the content is but to actually have the skill to directly communicate the content that you are creating to begin with I think is so unique and special and that's so cool that you're actually bringing those skill sets in as well. Well I guess I need help in the other bit where I keep uh, like referring to people like I need to uh, keep asking people to get more information about elephants, their habitats, their behaviors, all of that is something I heavily depend on with uh, the rest of the team to get information on that is I think it works slightly differently and that's all. <laughs> 
yeah, that that makes sense. But it's it's really interesting. And uh, yeah, thanks thanks so much, Tejaswini, for sharing these stories. I think it's very cool, and I hope that those who are listening know that there are so many different avenues with which you can end up in the space that you're in. I like very regularly and actively engaging with finding conservation solutions, even if it's not it was never part of your game plan as a kid. <laughs> so it's 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 quite inspiring in many ways. Wow. No, I think also like at least now since I've been working in this area and I've been talking to so many people working in the field, I think looking at my work, they also start like suggesting things I could work on. We've had a bunch more people starting to work on simpler things. So I think there's potential for so much in general for people from different backgrounds to work in conservation. So. There's, there's room for so many people. <laughs> that is such a beautiful note, actually, to close on. Thanks so much, Tejaswini, for doing this. It was great. Thank you all for coming back week after week to listen to The Thing About Wildlife. Nothing makes me happier than hearing back from you as each new episode rolls out. You guys are just fantastic. You keep me going. Thanks so much for filling up our DMs, messaging me on social media or even the emails that I just happen to get sometimes by chance. It is just so heartwarming. If you have been enjoying these episodes, do share the podcast, write into us, follow us on social media, or even take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It would help so much and I would love for this podcast to reach as many people as possibly can. This year, we also finally launched our website and you can find all our older episodes there along with info about the superb team I get to work with and all the guests we've had on the pod so far. We've also got a couple of very exciting announcements coming up, so do stay tuned and follow us on social media for these updates. I'm looking forward to sharing some collaborative work we've done recently, and of course, we will be returning with Season 3 before you know it. But even before that, there's a bonus episode coming up just in a couple of weeks to close off this season. So I'll see you then. Much love to you beautiful folks, and thanks for listening.